You're listening to an Explore Finland radio show podcast. Hello, this is Mark Wilkshire and thanks for choosing to listen to the Explore Finland radio show in partnership with Glenn Murray, the Nordic tourist. For this episode, I'm really happy to welcome a new guest and a friend. Michael hutchinson Reese is a fellow Londoner with Finnish roots and a close connection to the nearby town of Kortene. Thanks to Duomus Oyeyarvi for connecting me to Michael, although, to be honest, I already knew him. It's a small world, is Finland. Um, this is part one of another two-part episode about the fascinating tar-making industry in Finland. In this episode, Michael and I will discuss the historical significance of tar-making to Finland and to the wider world. Then, in episode two, we look more closely at the Tervaviikko, or Tar Week, festival in 2022. An event that takes place every three years in the woods uh, in nearby to Kuotene. Before we get started, I thought I'd give a mention to a few other people. Uh, to a listener, Lisa S., who wrote to me a few years ago saying that her family heritage is from this area. As she has three grandparents who were born in Kuotene, so... I hope you enjoy these two episodes, Lisa. And also to my friends Damien and Baivi. Baivi was my guest for the earlier episode about ice cream, which was also in Courtenay where she lived. That was until Damien dragged her away to live in Australia. Miss you guys. Anyway, Lisa and Baivi, if you have any stories related to this subject, I'd love to hear them. But now let's hear my conversation with Michael hutchinson Reese, which was recorded outside. So you're going to hear some wind noise and the occasional clanking of chains from the nearby Frisbee golf course. So Michael, thanks for joining me today and thanks for inviting us into the woods here on the edge of Lake Kuotene. Um, And we're going to be talking about this Tervavico here in Kuotene, but also about the whole culture of making tar Hmm. so i guess my first question is what is tar and how do you make it well technically i'm not i'm not a chemist (laughs) so but technically the uh, tar and the tar we're talking about here is wood tar specifically there are different types of tar and also pitch people tend to use the term pitch and tar interchangeably but we're talking about wood tar here Um, and it's a viscous dark liquid fluid um, and it's uh, made up of carbons and free carbons I don't know exactly what the, the, the chemical makeup is but basically as I'm going to explain to you it's it's actually um, derived it's it's actually dried in this instance the way we're doing it here is dry distilled from tree uh, tr- bits of wood uh, from tree in this in trees in this case it's going to be um, it's um, it's pine so it's all pine so this is a viscous fluid like oil when you see it it's like crude oil there are other parts of the world where where um, tar arises naturally like in Trinidad where my family come from my father's family come from um, you've got the tar tar lake pitch lake where the, the tar just comes out of the ground like oil like crude oil it comes out uh, and that's used for making tar macadam which people are very yeah because people with. will people will know the name tar and tarmac yeah. being being yeah. a sort of derivation from that, um, but that's produced more naturally out of the ground. And then what we're talking about is is something where where it's man made. Yeah, 
Um, and we're talking about the production of wood tar. I'm going to keep saying wood tar yeah. here. So to, to, to be more specific, the production of wood tar in this area has been going on since the 16th century. Now, in Scandinavia, a wood tar has been a specific product unique to this region uh, and also on the Russian side as well. But um, it's been very important in that it's been a, it's a sealant, it's waterproof, um, and also it can be used for flavoring food, it can be used for shampoo and soap, it can be used for all sorts of things. But historically, the importance of tar, wood tar, here in this area of Scandinavia, and particularly in this area part of Finland in Ostrobotnia, uh, southern Ostrobotnia, is that the tar has been sold, and it's been sold internationally. You can imagine, 400 years ago, 300 years ago, tar from this area was being sold, exported out of this area, Finland, which then belonged to Sweden, around the world. And guess who the biggest customer was? America. Nope. No. Biggest customer was the British Royal Navy. Oh, really? So you, you, you just said before that it was, it was used for sealing. Is that, are we talking about boats and roofs? That's Were there right. other, other That's uses? That's right, well? yeah, yeah. So the biggest and most um, po popular use for this tar produced in this area was to seal the wood on these sailing ships. Yeah, okay. And to stop them rotting when they get wet and also to stop the woodwork. And then also, um, I think I mentioned sometime before when we were talking that, that um, it's actually part of the British kind of language that we talk about British sailors being Jack Tar or Jolly yes. Jack Tar. Yeah. Well, they used to wear these, these straw hats and the straw hats were dipped in the same tar to waterproof them and seal them. And that's where you get the term Jolly Jack Tar. Right, and then tarred and feathered, I tar guess, was, well, a, was a punishment. Yeah, was yeah punishment. well, tarred and feathered, is, um, that wasn't, um, I mean, that wasn't why the stuff was sold out of <laughs> southern Ostrobotnia, but, but that was one of the uses people put it to. So yeah. they put it to all sorts of uses. But the other thing I think, if we're going to talk about the history, um, I just want to show you something that was given to me today. And this is a map, this is a map of Kuadvanet and it lists 400 plus tar pits that were basically in the backyards or in the woods of local farms. Now you've got to understand that the reason that southern Ostrobotnia Etlapohyoma is so different from other parts of Finland is that there's a, a, a long history of um, farming where the farmers were family farm, you know, it's a family farm, uh, dairy, they used to have sheep here, some cattle, but mostly dairy, and then of course crops like wheat and barley and, um, and so on. But every farm or a group of farms quite close to each other, and usually they would be related to each other because everybody's related here, uh, because you, you stayed on the land that you owned. So, uh, so people are kind of quite related, as people can see from the from the map. This, yeah. you know, the Kuortenay is a, a town on the edge of Lake. Yeah, Kuortene. I wouldn't call it a town though. I call it a village. Okay, but well then I was being town. complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it is, and yeah. um, and these these. Uh, pits that are marked out on the map are spread over quite a wide yeah. area. Yeah, I was um, just looking. And four, 400 is uh, is quite 
that's that's the ones that we know of. Yeah. There were probably more. We don't know how many more. But the thing about it was was that the income that these small family farms got, the additional income that they got, um, was considerable from producing tar. So it was a kind of literally a cottage industry. Yeah. But every farm had their cows, their sheep, their maybe chicken, and then they had the forest where they got the wood from and then they also got um, they also got their um, their dairy products and their wheat and everything and then on top of that they had tar now tar was then exported out of this area and sold to the British Navy for instance eventually so it helped the GDP of the whole country, yeah. essen and, essentially. And that's why, you know, if you go to other parts of Finland, they always talk about, oh yeah, Etla Pohjamaa is where they got all the big houses and people are so proud and everything. Like, there's a bit of a kind of cultural kind yeah, of yeah, stereotype sure. about these people here in Etla Pohjamaa. We're so proud and we, you know, we've got bigger fields, bigger tractors, bigger everything. And we got bigger houses. And you know, like, you've noticed the houses are on steroids. You know that they're. Have you noticed the old farmhouses that are narrower at the bottom and bigger at the yes, top? Yes, They look like they're kind yeah. of into the gym. <laughs> and, uh, and so... So this, this kind of came from the wealth that, that yeah, the tar industry yeah, yeah. created. Yeah, it, it was wealth. And then also, uh, I have to get into the politics. Because yeah. I've just been saying again today that when I first came here years ago, because uh, my wife is from here, my, my Finland, I came, I came to, to Finland when I was a kid in 1961 I was six years old in 1961 but my Finland was a different Finland it was like it was a Swedish speaking Finland on the coast down south in Borvo Borgo and um, my family were kind of you know petty bourgeois townspeople they were soldiers and seamen um, they were sea captains and so on and that's very different from the culture here where it's like you own your land and you farm and you stay you know and uh, of course, what happened here in, in Quartan is the, the reason that we have such strong links with America, the Finnish in America, is because the tradition here was that um, the oldest son inherited everything, which meant if there were three, four, five, six other brothers, they were left with nothing. So either they had to find a wife who was the sole kind of inheritor of that, their farm, but needed a husband, or they went to America. And, and so and, that's and actually, went to America. In, in a previous episode, we, we discussed the emigration from this region um, way back in season one. Um, and that was something that was talked about. Big families and not enough farm yeah. to go around, basically. Well, the house that we live in, our house, our summer house that we live in, was actually built with American money. Um, my wife's great aunt's husband's father went to America because he was I wouldn't say dispossessed but he was left with not enough mm. so he went to America and he worked hard in Michigan probably in the copper mines or something saved up money then came back and bought the land so for instance here my father-in-law makes a distinction between those of us who've inherited the land through family and those of us who went to America got worked you know all 24 hours a day for six years or something and then came back are they seen as the nouveau riche yeah nouveau riche <laughs> nouveau riche yeah they they you know and this happened like 100 150 years yeah, ago but yeah. my my father-in-law he said no they bought their land you know 
so so that's it but the other thing about tar was like 200 years ago i just been doing a little bit of research the other night on the 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 finnish war uh, the war between sweden and finland mm -hmm. now don't forget Finland, including this area, was just a eastern province of the Kingdom of Sweden 200 years ago, uh, up until 1809. And um, so what it was, was that all this tar that was produced here, when Finland was still part of Sweden, it had to be marketed or it had to be um, sold through Sweden. It had to go to Sweden where they taxed it. So uh, that affected the, the market here in that the, you know, the price of, um, it affected the price of tar and the, uh, the, and the profits that were made yeah. because of this taxa taxation by the King of Sweden. So um, it was still, still meant that it was profitable and, and it certainly was a significant uh, factor in the economic consolidation of wealth in this area from generation to generation. So this tar was very important, but it, tar was such a strategic resource that the British were prepared to go to war for it. So for instance, in 1808, the British were backing the Swedes uh, against Russia because they didn't want Russia to take over or they didn't want the Swedes to make a treaty as they eventually did with continental Europe and end up selling their tar from here to Napoleon because Napoleon was the great rival and the enemy. It, it, there are echoes in modern day times with oil under the desert, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. Um, yeah. That countries are, are supporting each other or going to war with each other for a natural resource that is in another country that's, yeah, that's yeah. nothing to do with no, them. Well, again, the British are behind it. I mean, the British. Uh, surprisingly enough, during the Napoleonic Wars, you know, the, the Battle of Copenhagen, where Nelson got his, I can't remember, was his eye or his arm was shot off or whatever. But, um, you know, so Britain had a, the British had a big uh, influence here. And the reason that Britain was so interested in the Baltic and Finland, uh, and, and by extension Sweden and Russia, was because things like tar that was really important to them. Obviously with the advent of steamships and steel ships and so on, then, then the importance and the value of, of, and the uses of tar declined. But tar was still, up until you know, the age of steam, a very important strategic resource. So is there something about the, the terrain of the Nordics, or Finland particularly, that meant that, that it was easier or better to make tar here than yeah. in the UK, for example? Yeah because you've got these huge pine forests. Right, you've got, okay. You've got, you've got a natural resource, which was, you know, in those days, if you're chopping down trees with an axe, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't gonna disappear. And in fact, the Finns have traditionally, historically looked after their forests. And so there's been no kind of deforestation of the country as you as you see in Britain, say, for instance, in, in the British Isles. Or in you know, Brazil, in the rainforest. Or Brazil, yeah. what's happening now in Brazil. So. So the forests were intact, they were abundant, and they were, you know, you just walked out your kitchen door and there it was. So the, you know, it was, you, well, you didn't have to go far, you just kind of walked up the hill and uh, started, started chopping down trees. So maybe we should talk about how they make tar, and that's partly, will lead on to what we're talking about 
this week taking place in Quarternay, this Derva week yeah. or Tar week. Um, we've come to talk to you today, maybe in the background the listener can hear um, the occasional sound of a chainsaw, that's because there is a team of people from the local Lions Club chopping up wood and making this tar pit. But yeah. maybe you can talk us through the, the process, right. which starts well in advance of this week, doesn't it? Okay. The first thing I want to start off with, with how I got started on this, how I got involved in this, because I was here many years ago, and I was watching this, actually about around about this, this stage of the process, and I was watching them doing the work, and I was with a Jamaican friend, a Jamaican-British friend, and, and like we made the joke, because we, we didn't realise the significance of this process and this tar and how it was made and how it was exported and then we we made the joke that if there wasn't Quartan tar there had there wouldn't be a British Navy there wouldn't have been a British Empire there wouldn't have been colonialization and there wouldn't have been slavery from Africa to took our ancestors yeah. from Africa to the Caribbean and to Quartan North America has got and a that lot was a joke <laughs> but there's just a bunch of guys in the woods you know making this tar but actually it's kind of a bit you have to kind of use your imagination to realize how influential yeah. historically this process is. So then over the years, I got more and more involved in helping out. And um, it's quite a technical process. And, you know, I'm still a bit of an apprentice. I'm still, you, you know, learning. But one of the things, what I've seen from the beginning is that that, that tar pit now is, um, it represents all the old tar pits that are on this map here, the 400 that were in people's backyards. 200 years ago so what we have now is you've got you've got as you uh, you might have noticed that where you find pine forests there's often sandy soil there's this light soil so there's sand so in fact if you look around the pit you'll see that it's sandy soil yeah. and if you go down far enough you might hit uh, maybe a layer of clay and then you'll hit the bedrock but it's not too deep so the tar pit is about, what would you say, it's about 10 meters across, mm -hmm. 10, 15, no, not 15 meters, 10 meters across, and um, in diameter. And at the bottom uh, is a drain. I, I'm going to call it a drain. Yeah, yeah. And that drain, is, there's a steel pipe in there to, to, to keep it open. And that, that drain goes down and then along and comes out at the side of the pit, which is built up. Yeah and it comes out so gravity is going to pull the tar oh, down because right, okay. the when the tar is beginning to sweat out of the wood as it heats up it's going to be pulled down by gravity and comes out just like a, a drain the stuff comes out that way what we did this morning was that on i think on thursday night they put down that that matting yes. on the bottom which is waterproof but it's also going to stop the tar actually seeping into the sand so it actually seals off the bottom and with the drain in the middle as you see it's like a it's like a bowl with the drain at the lowest point and then what we started to do today is we started to get the wood some of the wood is chopped and then it has to be axed again to split you know like the logs you put in your sound yeah, yeah. it has to be split again now the other thing I should say before I forget is that that wood that we're chopping up today has been cured for three years now and if you look at these pine trees here uh, what I, I went out one day with them and they what they did was they stripped the bark of one side of the tree 
and then that produces a resin on that side. So the, the side that's been stripped produces resin, I guess, to protect the wood. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to call it resin because I couldn't find the translation in English of the word pichta in Finnish. So resin was the best thing I could find. And you could, you saw the resin, it's kind of, I've got pictures of it, it's a kind of greenish, greyish, yeah, like kind of mould, yeah. wax thing. And that that is very important in terms of producing the tar. So if you look at a typical piece of wood that we've been chopping up today, it's about maybe a half a metre long and it's split like the wood you put in the, the oven for the yeah. salmon. Yeah. And then on one side you'll get this pichga, resin, and then on the other side wood. And that is all, as you saw, stacked tightly facing downwards. You can see from the pictures a yeah. be beautiful sort of geometric yeah. shape of this yeah. thing going round yeah. and round and round but in actually sort of spiral. The, but I, as, as an apprentice tar maker here, <laughs> I, I'm, the most I've managed to do is the wheelbarrow stuff, like carrying and fetching and stuff like that. Um, I could do the axe work, but I'd probably be here for a couple of months if I had to do the axe work. So the guys doing the axe work, they're just quite good and quite quick. Um, so I just do the wheelbarrow stuff and I just deliver these, these wheelbarrow loads of, of wood to the guys around it. And they're going round in circles and then going towards the, the bottom. One of the technical things I was asking today was that, that when we started this morning, the, the wood was facing downwards like it was it was like going down into the bottom of yeah the, like funneling down to the center down, yeah. yeah but now it's actually building up and in fact the center where the pencil is yes um, that is an indicator of how the the, the, the fire is going to burn and the, the, the pencil is the, yeah okay the pencil okay. The, the pole in the yeah middle, I, I saw there was like yeah. a, a small tree trunk standing yeah. up in the middle and that kind of that kind of pins all the other bits ah okay. but it also it will fall eventually, but you'll see as the fire burns over the next week or so that it, it kind of, you can see, you can measure how it's, it's going so down. So it has a structural purpose yeah. and then also an indicator purpose yeah, in the burning an process. And okay. also the amazing thing I was looking at today was that there's a temperature gauge in the middle. Okay. And there's wires. I can't remember what the wires are made of, but last time I was here, um, three years ago, the center, the core of the fire reached 300 degrees centigrade wow. plus, and this wire is still there, <laughs> and it's showing us the uh, the temperature. I don't know, if, I don't know how that works. I mean, what it's made out of, why it doesn't melt, I yeah. don't know. But anyway, that's there. And then tomorrow, when we finish it, it will probably come up to about a meter and a half, maybe two meters off the ground. So that's a meter and a half off the ground, but a, a couple of meters but down. But it goes as well. down yeah. as well. Yeah. And then on top of that will be chucked on all that moss and stuff on top, which actually damps down the top. And there's this weird kind of thing about this tar burning is that they're actually starving the, the, um, the, the fire of oxygen. Okay. They don't want to give it too much oxygen. So putting this stuff on the top actually dampens down. The, and it does burn at the edges. Where it's exposed to the air, yeah. it does burn. But what's happening inside is you're getting this kind of sweating cooking process where where the wood actually sweats out the the tar the and then it drip the resin yeah. and it just drips down into that drain and then comes out the bottom so put into barrels. you said before it's a kind of viscous yeah. liquid what, what is it is it black or brown it's or? a blackish brown color. right okay. yeah, if it's good quality yeah. it's black or brown yeah um i i'm not 
expert enough to be able to look at this tar and say, oh, that's good. You know, that's, you know, 2022, that was a good year. <laughs> good vintage, <laughs> good yeah. vintage. So I don't, I'm not sure I could do that. But I can, I can, I can see that when it's, you know, relatively fluid and uh, clear, yeah. Uh, you can actually, you know, if you put it in a bottle, you can see through it. It's a kind of light brown, yeah. orange color. And then when when you have a whole barrel full, it's, yeah. it looks black. And is it the smoke that gives it the, the darker color? Yeah, that's the thing I learned last time was that, because uh, I had to watch the fire overnight. And uh, one of the things I was told to look out for is if the, if the is smoke coming off the top, through that all that moss and all that green stuff on top, if the smoke coming up is kind of, white steamy smoke yeah then that's fine okay but if it turns black that means the tar itself is burning ah, the fire okay. is too okay. hot yeah and it's actually burning because the, the tar will eventually catch yeah a course, light if course. it's too hot like oil it will burn so um so the trick is to to do it and so if it is too hot and it's black do they put more of the moss around it to yeah, try and yeah, cool, and that it cools down. it down yeah, yeah. Okay. Or, or they'll actually pour water okay on it. Yeah. Pour, yeah. You, you might see they don't seem to worry about rain at all you know the, the, the rain is not a problem i guess moss and water are natural <laughs> materials so yeah. it's all part of the all part of the process yeah, so they don't worry about that but um one of the things that um one of the side products of this tarp tar making pro wood tar making process is charcoal ah right because okay. at the end of the the end of the week there'll be a whole pile of charcoal and a guy comes and collects the charcoal and he pays the the lion's club money for the charcoal yeah, and then he sells that on for yeah, people yeah. to and use so, on their barbecues yeah, probably yeah and so that's one of the things that you see it when when it's set a light on um, you're coming back on wednesday yeah aren't sure you? when it's set a light on wednesday when we start having to push it we have to keep pushing it, opening it up so that it burns faster or slower. So sometimes you're shoveling sand on it to, to damp it down. Sometimes you're dragging with a shovel kind of thing, you're, you're dragging it out so that you get more air yeah, into it. So, okay. so it, it actually has to be managed over a week and there's gonna be somebody there all the time, 24 hours a day watching it. That's, that's interesting. So that, I, do, is there anything else to tell about the actual making process or can we move on and talk about the terra vehicle? Um, I think that that's the basics mm. of, of how it's made. Uh, as I said, like, I've asked the guys many, many times, I said, like, where did you learn this stuff? Like, how did you learn to do this? And this is quite obviously, historically, uh, a skill, an indigenous skill that's been developed in this area mm. over centuries mm. and that people just inherit it from their parents I do wonder with these kind of um, these, like, like, well, I guess with the first caveman learning how yeah. to make fire but how did the first person I don't know I don't know well, how, did it, how did it come how did it come I mean, about somebody but, must have been sitting around the cave and thought oh, <laughs> this this um, this piece of wood is is you know sweating this this resin uh, yeah. what can we do with this and then we'll paint our faces with it and then you know started realizing that if you coated it wood with it it wouldn't rot or it was waterproof so yeah it's in interesting but but the other thing about that that process is that um i've got involved now i'm a son-in-law and i've got involved i'm a foreign son-in-law and i've got involved in this and one of the things i have to say is that people have been very welcoming they've been very pleased that i've been, taken an interest and got involved and also they're quite proud they're quite proud of this that that you know 
that somebody appreciates the work that they're doing. Um, and also, I would say that, like, you know, like, I kind of joke because people here in Quartana, they think I'm the exotic, the exotic son-in-law from, from London and the Caribbean. Hey, listen, America. we're both from London. I think you're the exotic, the exotic <laughs> no, one around here. Say, but I think they're exotic. Yeah. I think they're yes. really exotic. Like, the stuff that they're doing here is, like, unique. Nobody else in the world is doing this. I say this to Finnish people all the time, that you don't realise how your everyday mm -hmm. cultural things are exotic to yeah. people like us who yeah. come here to live like yeah. it's that, that the, the fact that people are making tar I, I spoke to my parents last week and i said how do you make tar and they looked at me and scratched their heads and they were like oh, this, this, hopefully this interview will be interesting and they'll they'll all learn yeah something but what i noticed over there like clearly there's some older guys there in the lions club who've got this knowledge um and they're they're doing this this every three years but also there's some younger guys there so hopefully yeah. that's being passed on to, to newer yeah. generations and also well. the younger guys they got big tractors right <laughs> they got flipping big tractors the new generation of, of farmers <laughs> like, and landowners like, yeah. so you see the old guys are the guys with the axes yeah. and the new guys are the ones with and the tractors so, yeah, not so, silly, are they? so yeah so um, there's a certain degree of mechanization going on over the generations but yeah it is it is hopeful it's very optimistic that um, we can be optimistic that this is going to be passed on from generation to generation I'm going to try and get my kids well their kids are going to come and have a look maybe when they're older they might actually join in so um, so that's hopefully the future is, is going to be that this is going to continue won't be lost forever So I think that's a good place to pause this conversation. Big thank you to Michael for his time. Glenn and I did some filming during the Derva Vico week, so check the show notes for links to the video and photos from that day. Listener, we visited Quartanis several times while exploring Finland, so if the area is interesting to you, there's a few other episodes for you to discover. Uh, episode 10, Finland's Olympic Training Centre, which was recorded just down the way from this episode in Quartanis. Episode 22, How Much Does Finland Love Ice Cream, that I mentioned in the intro. And episode 28, The Magic of Midnight Golf in Finland, which was recorded at Quartene Golf Club. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support, then please take a minute to share this episode. You can spread the word to your friends on your social network of choice. Let them know about the show and invite them to explore Finland with us. Also, if there's a subject that you want me to cover in a future episode, you can contact me via the website or social media. I'll be happy to hear from you. So, until the next episode, goodbye. You've been listening to the Explore Finland radio show. You can find me online at explorefinlandpodcast.com. You can follow the show on your social network of choice. Facebook, at Explore Finland Radio Show. Twitter, at Explore Finland. Instagram, at Mark Wilkeshire. See the links in the episode description. And remember to subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you're listening or watching it.